0: and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. He came near the house. He heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what is going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead. And is alive again. He was lost. And is found. This is the word of the Lord. And it is a good word this morning. We are going to spend three weeks in this passage. Looking character by character. First this morning at the younger son. Secondly, at the older son. And if you're like me, that one might sting. But then the good news, the one who this passage is about, about the father. And I want us to move through identification first with the younger son, the rebel. Second, to the older son, the good one. Ultimately landing on the father and how it is, that we can increase our capacity to show mercy and to forgive people in identifying with the younger son and then identifying with the older son, hoping that we can learn to identify with the Father who is full of mercy and compassion, to receive God's mercy as both the first two sons that we might give mercy to others. And as the sirens remind us, there's some urgency to this. Um, We'll just say that. um, That was unprompted. I just folded that right in there. You see that? You're watching a master at work. So, teach us to forgive as the father forgives the son, the younger son, and teach us to have mercy and compassion as he pleads with the older brother to have mercy and compassion. Uh, Miroslav Volf wrote a book called... Exclusion and Embrace. I read it once with a group of people that helped me understand it. It is a book that is beyond my grasp to just sit down and read and understand, Um, but it's a very good book and and worth wrestling with. And what Wolf talks about, and and he having front row seat to an ethnic cleansing uh, in in the what used to be known when I was a kid as Yugoslavia in their civil war, their ethnic cleansing, he saw firsthand how people are capable, the, the amount of evil that people are capable of. And he writes that the, the greatest evils are possible when you take one group, and the way he puts it, when you exclude one group from their humanity, so they're they not human, while excluding yourself from the company of sinners. Calls that the, the dual exclusion. I am not like them, and they are not like me. So that works both ways. And what he takes this passage and says this othering, this way that we take groups and divide it, and begins with the notion of you and I disagree, into the notion of you don't have all the facts, and I want to correct you in those mistakes and those facts. All the way into, you're actually evil, and the world will be safer without you in it. He says that move towards exclusion is away from the heart of God. And within Christianity, within the story, is the the blueprint of reconciliation, of identifying that we are in the company of sinners, while identifying the propensity, the the deep nature within us to divide the world and to refuse to be with those kinds of people because of what they did into the heart of the Father that welcomes and includes. And so since that's an ambitious goal, if I were to do all of that, today's sermon would be over an hour long. So I thought, why not divide it into three parts? You are welcome. (laughs) I was just too long. So let's start with the younger son. We were introduced to him with his request. Give me my share of the inheritance an inheritance is what you receive when your father passes, and since he's the younger son, if you were to divide the father's estate into three parts, the older son gets two parts as the firstborn man. Um, the, all the younger sons get a half portion from the older son. I, you would not believe I used to teach math by how I just explained <laughs> ratios of work. The older brother gets twice what the younger brother gets, so he gets that, that ends up being a third of his estate. Uh, And what he says to his father is, I don't, you know, the problem with inheritances is is you have to wait for the father to die before you receive it. I don't want to wait. I want it now. I want it today. And normally, death separates me from you, but I receive an inheritance. What I want is I want that separation now. Give me my cut, my share, so that I can go and enjoy this while I still have my youth, while I still want to party, uh, as it were. So he's saying, I, your relation, my relationship to you is quantifiable. It's an amount of gold that is the third the value of your estate. So if you would be kind enough, I know that back then people weren't super liquid, so Sell a third of the cattle, sell a third of the land, give me a third of what you have, um, get a loan to cover a third of my share of the harvest this year. Just, I understand this is going to take some time, um, but within a day or two, if you could get me my share of the inheritance, then I can move on and we can walk away. It's, it's unheard of. It's so unheard of that I am sure when Jesus began this story and told it in, the, in its original form, in, you know, 2,000 years ago, there was a gasp. I mean, some of the, the request is so crass and wicked that even saying it makes, would have made people feel uncomfortable. It's, it's so um, disrespectful, calloused, even evil. Who would request such a thing? But what, as shocking as the son's request is, the father's actions are even more shocking. Because what does he do? He gives him his share. Let me tell you the story that would, you would have expected to hear back, back then. You know, son, younger son goes to his father, and says, give me my share of the inheritance now. The father reaches back and gives him a firm backhand across his face and the, spins the son around so he falls down and says, how dare you dishonor your father in this way. I will not be reduced to a pile of gold so that you can have your little parties. I'm not a good actor. <laughs> I'm realizing that right now. I was like, I don't even know what I was aiming for right then. Uh, but... Uh, did, no, I, that's, that's even worse. All my accents blur into something that is utterly incoherent. Like, there's no place that says that in that way, John. Um, so, did not Did not the law, I can draw, anyway, did not the Lord command Moses that you are to honor your father and mother? Therefore, I take your inheritance and give it to your older brother who is faithful. He's always here. He's always working. He always does what he's asked the first time. You know how firstborn are. I don't have to tell you guys how firstborn are. Uh, Oh, wait, I'm firstborn. Oh, man, I got to text my sister. Um, So... Do you, do you, he gets, you are dead to me. You you are cast outside of the family. You are cast outside of the property. You are to go and live in poverty and obscurity. Be gone. Like, that's how the story is supposed to go. But what the father instead says is, okay, give me some time to get things together. But I'll have it for you on Monday morning by daylight. And you are free to go. And at first light, son takes the money, loads up his mule, leaves, and doesn't look back. And, like old rebellion, starts out really fun. This is the best. I love college. It's kind of what he's going off to, to a you know, school like, oh, I don't know, San Diego State. So he goes down there, and <laughs> go Aztecs. Uh So you go out there and uh, squanders his wealth. All this, you know, I just, part of, in thinking about this is how is wealth accumulated? It's generational. Uh, if you're selling land in particular, this may have gone all the way back for generations after generations that has stewarded the land, that has built up enough wealth and capital to pass on to the next generation, that's provided stability. All these generations of 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 work, the accumulation of and the, the sustenance from generation to generation, gone, traded in, for, um, wasted, traded in for a pile of empty bottles and nights he probably can't remember anyway. Um, I was teaching a class a few weeks ago at Oak Valley College, spiritual formation class, and I was, to put it really frankly, I was just, I was bringing it that day. It was really good, but then. in the the kind of the denim of my lecture, these two beautiful large white dogs run past the door. And then whatever I was talking about, which I actually have no idea what I was talking about that day, but I do remember the whole class looking at those dogs, this gasp of like, oh my gosh, are they lost? And us running to the window, opening the door, greeting them, petting them, asking them who's a good boy and responding with, yes, that's right, you're a good boy and petting them and, and uh, making sure that they, were, they had water, that they were in a secure place where they couldn't escape and that their owners were contacted, which they were. So I gathered the, the class back and, and um, said to them, you know, there's, there's no happier creature in the world than a dog who has just got out from the fence. They are free to sniff what they want, to linger, find the source of those smells, to chase what they want, to go, where there has been known squirrel activity and to chase and to give chase to them. And there's, there really is, if you look at them, whatever a dog smile looks like, it's that freedom of I'm off the leash and I'm free to roam and free to explore. Um, but in that moment, they're free, they're happy. When you see a lost dog and you see their joy, you think, oh my gosh, they look really happy, but I'm concerned for them because they don't, They're going to get hit by a car. They don't understand their danger that they're in. And night is coming. And when night comes, it's cold. They're going to be hungry by then. They're going to be thirsty. All the adrenaline, uh, I don't know if dogs have adrenaline, but whatever the dog version of adrenaline is, has long worn off. And they are scared. They whimper. Nobody comes to take care of their needs. And they realize at some point that they've made a horrible mistake. And that's what happens to the younger son. He's free, he loves it, but then what happens? Famine comes, he's out of money, and he's hungry, and he's scared, and he's alone. There's nobody to show him hospitality because he's in a a faraway land. These are not his people. And he has traveled outside the boundaries of the Torah, the law of Moses, the law of God, to his people saying, "The, the, the, the big four that the law of Moses are, The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. So here is an immigrant who has no money. But there's no law of Moses governing over people to be attentive to this and to take as their personal responsibility caring for somebody who is a stranger in a strange land. There is that they are not his people. There's no prophets rallying the people saying, you have forgotten that you are called to be a blessing to others, to leave space in your fields for the poor to gather and to care for themselves, to to hear the cries of the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant, because I hear those prayers, and I am for them. And if you are not for them, then you are putting yourself on a reckless and dangerous place. There's no law and there's no prophets. It's been said... And and I say that as somebody who has a, a keen memory of good sayings and a short memory of who said them. But it's been said that the poor among us are our prophets that speak to who we truly are as a people. The prophets are the ones who stand up and tell us how to get to a place where we can be a blessing to everyone. So we hide the poor from our sight and we kill our prophets. And that's ultimately what is happening here. Randolph Richards uh, wrote a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, and he tells the story of where he reads the story of the prodigal son in Western seminaries and places like this. So when I say Western, I mean America, Western Europe. And he tells the story, and then he, after he's done with it, we just heard it, he asks, what happened to put this man in a place where he was feeding pigs and longing to eat what they ate? And what in Western contexts, what we see, first and foremost, is squandered money. He was fiscally irresponsible. But when he goes to Latin America, the continents of South Africa, that's not a continent, that's actually a country. What I meant to say was the continent of South America, or the continent of Africa, or most of Asia, but other parts of the world, they see two things, front and center of the story. One is a famine. Two, and I'm going to read the words that Jesus put it because I think this is stood out to them uh, in ways that I, I want to want to stand out to me. Um, he says he longed to fill with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So what the rest of the world sees, what we often meet, miss, is a famine and a lack of hospitality. He was in need. Nobody sought to take care of his need. There's nobody to show him hospitality, and there's no one to help protect him from the famine. It's not until the famine comes that he's in problem, which is a reminder, we don't control our environment. That, That we, I think that's why we miss it. And the other is that there's nobody around to take personal responsibility for the plight of a poor immigrant. It's worth asking why it is that we miss what famines bring the world and what happens when people don't show hospitality. Because I think there's a blind spot within us for a reason. And part of this parable is seeing that the prodigal son was treated by others in the way he treated his own father. That in telling his father, your value to me is measurable, it's a pile of gold, it's my inheritance. And then he goes to a place where his value is measured by his wealth and his ability to provide a party and provide hospitality to others. But when that's gone, he ceases to exist altogether, which is exactly what he did to his father. So, he reaches the rock bottom, and in the Jewish imagination, you could not picture a worse rock bottom than feeding pigs in a foreign place, far from home, serving unclean animals. And in that moment, the way Jesus puts it, he comes to his sentence, his senses and he heads home. This is a picture of repentance. Repentance simply means to turn, to turn from one way to another. And, and repentance is very literal here. He literally goes home. He turns from living in a far off land to heading home. He, he leaves. But what does repentance look like in him? It begins with essentially a form of a really bad business deal. I've made some mistakes. I've sinned against you and against heaven. So if I could just come back and start to work again as one of your servants, if I could just, I mean, I'm not going to repay the debt in a lifetime, but I would be better treated as a servant in your household than as a free person in this faraway country. I'll just go home. There's no real hope for reconciliation within him. He doesn't say, maybe I'll be forgiven. What he says is maybe my dad will, have, will find enough value in me as somebody who understands the, the land and the business and the people that work there that I might be of some value to him as a servant. So I'm gonna just go home. And what he hopes for is his survival. Turns up, it's far better than his wildest dreams. For when he was a long ways off, his father runs to him. And it's interesting to take this passage and overlay on top of it Genesis 3 and the fall, and God coming, looking, calling out for Adam and Eve. Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? And coming to them, seeing them covered in leaves, trying to cover up their nakedness. And, and what, does Jesus, what does God do in that moment? He covers them, he, he sacrifices an animal and provides them with clothing. And what is the first thing the Father does? He's looking, he's calling out, he sees them, he runs to him, to them, he embraces him. He covers them with a robe, puts sandals on his feet, he covers up the shame with, with this robe, and then he gives a ring, which is significant because a ring would have had the, the family signet on it, which would means that you could actually conduct a business it's a sign of authority that you have the authority now to and the idea that he could trade out his inheritance for cash and squander it and then be given the keys again to run the business and, and to conduct that business and then throwing a party in part of the the purpose of the party, it's, it's yes, it's joyful, it's celebration. But if you're a member of the community, you're invited to this party, and you're told over and over again that the father is delighted that his son has returned, what that functions is that provides reconciliation of the younger son back to the village, back to the people. That he's not just reconciled back to the father, but he's also reconciled back to the community. That with the ring. The dress and the party, it's all being restored back to him. Such good news. And the question I've sat in all week is why is why is the turn back home so hard? Let me even expand that out. Why is it so hard to say, I'm sorry and I made a mistake? In even the most stable, loving relationships in your life, to say, I am sorry, I made a mistake. What is it within us that makes it so hard for us to confess to one another, I made a mistake? If you see, the three moves in this parable are the rebellion, the bottom, and then turn home. It is always the turn home that is the hardest. It is always admitting, I am lost and I need help. They say in recovery that your best thinking got you here. What made sense to you, the road you took, got you to this place. And to put it in the context of the story, your best order of thinking got you feeding pigs. An animal trying to survive, longing to eat what the the pigs eat. Um, And what may be turning home will give you a new future. Maybe that future will be working it off. Maybe you're gonna find that you live in a world that has more mercy and grace embedded in it than you imagined. And maybe what you'll find in that turn is that you'll get what you really want deep down, home. A place where you belong, look out for each other. Uh, In this parable, judgment, takes the form of creating space for him to leave. And mercy takes the form of welcoming him home. There was no punishment the father needed to give the son because he'd already, gone through, he'd already come to the end where he, he received the wages for his rebellion. The father keeps no record of wrongs, stands waiting, looking, hoping today is the day that my son comes home. Think. Jesus tells stories to reform and reshape our imagination. When you sit in shame, this is what you're doing is you're imagining a future where you don't have a home. If people only knew this, I would be rejected. People that I love the most wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. I know God sees it, so I kind of can't look directly at God because I know that he is privileged to my innermost thoughts. If people knew the real me, I would be, well, I'd be like the prodigal son. Cut off, nobody want to have anything to do with me, and maybe, just maybe, somebody would take enough interest in me to help me ensure my own survival. But Jesus wants us to have a different imagination a sacred, shaped, changed imagination where what we picture is God running to us, covering our shame in the resurrection, putting a ring, walking under our finger, walking us home, throwing a feast to reconcile us back to our community. So come to the table. come to the feast that has already been prepared for you. As the feast that reconciles us back to God and reconciles us back to one another. We all come to the table together as fellow prodigals looking for home again. And as you return to your seats, talk to God. See him running towards you. Imagining him covering your shame, picking you up off your knees, putting a ring on your finger, and saying, I'm so glad that you came home. You were lost, you were found, you're dead, you're alive. Come, enjoy the feast i prepared in your honor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for who told it that Jesus is the one who ultimately welcomes us home and provides a way for us back home. Thank you that no matter what we think about you, no matter how we imagine you, no matter how our imagination has been shaped by those who have done harm to us, we believe this story. We believe that you keep no record of wrong, that you see us at our bottom, and your only desire is to welcome us home. So as we come to the table, we take part of the feast that you have provided in and through the person of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Come to the table.